I want to begin by asking you a question about your pattern of life maybe the way that you live. Think about the system that you live in, in that there are certain times of the day or the week or wherever that you may be in a very specific place. If cell phones all of a sudden were no longer a thing, I wonder how easy you would be to find. How many of you are creatures of habit? How many of you are in the same place at the same time most consistently? You've kind of found that flow of life. Some of you are very much there, like maybe on a Monday morning at 9 a.m., pretty predictably so, maybe, you know, 45 out of 52 weeks of the year, Monday mornings at 9 a.m., we have a staff meeting. And so if you want to find uh, staff together, that's one of the places that we may be. Uh, if you want to find me, I think there's a, some pretty good patterns. Uh, I, I, it intrigues me how many times I have people who try to get in touch with me, and they call me at 6.40 on a Wednesday night. Not sure if you all are aware, but we have a little thing called Bible study on Wednesday nights. I've been doing that for 20-something years now. So if you call me at 6.40 on a Wednesday night, even when I was a youth pastor, I remember one of my loved ones that would call me notoriously at 6.40 on Wednesday nights, and it just so happened he did it several weeks in a row. And at the end of the several weeks in a row, I thought it would be very funny that I would answer the phone while in Bible study with the teenagers. And so I told them all who was calling me, and I said, on the count of three, I want you all to say hello. And I said, one, two, three. And I hit answer on the phone and did this. And the entire room went, hello! And the other line goes, I'm so sorry. Click. <laughs> Not a problem anymore, by the way. That was a lesson learned, and I haven't had a phone call from that person at 640 since. But you know, you, if you have those things that are predictable, this morning we're going to be reading a story. It's in John chapter 8, as a matter of fact. You're welcome to go ahead and turn there. We'll be beginning in verse 2, because it's just the easiest place to follow along with the story. But this is a very predictable person that is found, and it's not necessarily found uh, as a complimentary thing toward her. Um, and we'll spend some time in this discussion really looking at this individual, but especially the way that Jesus interacts with her. Um, this is one that probably, if you've been in the church for a long time, is a familiar thing to you. Uh, you've probably heard this story before, but if you've been reading the Bible for a while, you also relate. You can read the same stories throughout the years, and it's amazing how those same stories continue to shape and mold you. Amen? Let's do that this morning. Stand with me if you would. John chapter 8, beginning in verse 2. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And he stooped down again and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first until, they, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. God, we come before you this morning looking back in some ways maybe to familiar texts, in some ways maybe to a text that we even forgot existed. But regardless of our lenses from which we see this text, God, would you speak to us clearly, help us to learn better who you are, how you interacted in this world, so that we can go and do likewise in this life that we're living. We love you and we thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. And you may be seated.
There are many that read this story and time and time again, they have felt as if this woman was caught, and I'm not here to say or negate or have any other discussion about it. This woman was caught in the act of adultery and that that was something that happened recently. I want you to know it's plausible that this was something that was known about her from a separate occurrence. So like I can't just say definitively it's there, but I do know this. When you read the story, no matter when she was found to be caught in the act of adultery, it seems to be this having been this thing that was predictable that she could be found. That they knew who she was and they knew what she had been a part of or knew what she had been doing. I think there's not a stretch at all to say that, that she was enough fully immersed in her lifestyle that this is how she is known. I wonder sometimes the things that like, how are we known? When people think of you, what else do they think of? Maybe, maybe the, the hobbies that you do or the job that you have or the, the things that kind of make up the DNA of who you are. Can you imagine this morning that the DNA of this person, at least within the identity of how people saw her, they knew where to go and find her, the one who had been caught in this act of sin. That's a very, that's a very difficult thing to be known for. You know, uh, you think about like what, what her identity was and it is knowing like this is who she is. And another thing that I think is very important to notice, do you see this woman coming to Jesus looking for forgiveness? What's her motivation in being there? Good answer. It's none. She didn't choose this. You know what I mean? This is not where she wanted to be on a Tuesday morning. Okay, whatever the schedule is in her world, this is not the plan. She is dragged into this and she is put in front of these people. And the, the, the sheer awkwardness of what's going on is that she wasn't there to come to see Jesus. She wasn't there to, she didn't choose to be in this situation. Matter of fact, she was taken here and made to stand before a group. And then her sin is called out in front of everyone. Can you imagine this for just a moment? Think about the things that you look back at in your life with regret. Think about the things that you know are a part of your identity that you may not like to acknowledge it like, yes, I was an idiot and did these things before. I was very, very foolish and I did these things before. What's it like when they bring you to the, at least in their context, the, the holy man of the area in front of all these other people that are supposed to be holy people? I mean, this would be like marching, marching you up here in front of the church on a Sunday morning and saying, hey, this is Daniel Metters and he has lived a life of being an idiot. What do you say about him? You know what I mean? That's what we're talking about. Can you imagine that being your context of a horribly, horribly awkward moment? Jesus sensing that moment of awkwardness. People have wondered time and time again what Jesus was writing on the ground. They, they've made their assumptions. People have guessed at what He was writing. I've wondered before, how many of you, if you've gotten older, I'm not saying you've mastered this, how many of you, as you have gotten older, have learned to think for a few moments before you speak and respond? How many of you learned that sometimes your knee-jerk reaction, not your best reaction? You know what I mean? Like sometimes, and I've wondered before, is Jesus kneeling in this place because he needs time to compose himself? Is Jesus kneeling in this place because he sees this woman who is broken? And she has been dragged in front of everyone, made a spectacle. And he sees the men who are making her a spectacle. And in his frustration, he has to grit his teeth for a moment. I've wondered before, what does he write? I've wondered before, like, is he writing a message that would speak to her or speak to them? And there's an interesting thing of as he writes on the ground and then the people begin to leave. Some people have, have guessed before, does he... Does he write the Shema on the ground. 
know that the Lord your God is one. You know, to, to essentially love your neighbor. There is this, this connectedness of, of each other and how we're supposed to live and how, and how loving the Lord your God with all of your heart and your neighbor as yourself is not what's going on in this. So maybe is, that, is he writing a phrase that would, that would capture what's taking place in this? Regardless in Jesus' story, I want you to know that when Jesus writes in the sand, he gets back up and asks her a question that I think needs to be, needs to be a pinnacle moment for us as trying to be Christ-like. Because there's this moment where, where sinfulness and awkwardness and embarrassment is taking place, and tensions are high because you think about what's at stake here. They're trying to catch Jesus in such a way that they can trip him up. Matter of fact, she's not even a part of the story here. The real story is they're using her story as a way to, to get after Jesus, okay? Because they know if Jesus says, no, don't follow the laws of Moses, then he's automatically a heretic. He's against the laws of Moses, and therefore we need to do away with him, all right? But then if he says to stone her, is he not contradicting the other things that he said about loving your neighbor and the, and the, and the turning the cheeks and those sorts of conversations that he's been around? I mean, he's in a very, very difficult spot in this. And so as he, as he sneals down and he deals in this very high tension, very high emotion, very high drama situation, he responds back and says, is no one left to condemn you? Neither do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. Can I tell you this morning, I've made the statements before and I still feel this way. Christians should be the type of people that are preferred when it comes to hiring jobs, hiring for a job. I know you can't put, uh, in today's world, or at least in the culture that we live in, you know, you're not supposed to ask questions about uh, religions or ethnicities or all the other things in the world and but in the midst of, of not being able to ask those things, don't you think that Christians should do life in such a way that they, that they honor God with everything that they have in such a way that when people want to hire someone else, they say, bring me the Christians. They're always good workers. I mean, like, that, that would be the way we, it should work, like that we're preferred in that. I, I would say this morning that not only is that the way that it should work, I also need you to know that Christians should be the ones who care more about humanity than anyone else. Like, we are the ones who see things differently in a much bigger picture. I heard someone say not long ago that in this life that we're living, <clears throat> we see people who are applying the, the, fine, the rules of finite games to infinite games. They're, they're using things, they're viewing things with very finite laws, with very finite vision, and they're applying those to the, to the infinite things that are taking place. He used this as a bit of a, of a simple analogy. I thought it was intriguing. He said the reason that the U.S. arguably lost the war in Vietnam, obviously not, not accomplishing what we went there to accomplish, he said was that we go there to win a battle, but you're fighting people who are fighting to stay alive. They're not necessarily worried about the short-term battle. They're, they're worried about continuing to exist. And so he started asking, he's like, how does our very finite and short-term thinking, how does that hinder or, 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 or cripple us in different ways? He said, you know, the way to be successful is not to have an accomplishment, because to have an accomplishment is very finite in its short term. The way to be successful is to continue to be successful. The, the way to, to be successful in business is not to get a business started, but it's to stay in business. Success in marriage is not to be married or get married, but to work in such a way that you stay married. 
understand why? There's this longer term picture that, that this guy was challenging about. And he was doing it from a lot of different perspectives. And not necessarily from a Christian perspective. But from a Christian perspective, should we not be the people who are way more concerned with the infinite than we are of the finite in these short terms? I wonder sometimes, how does that apply? Jesus speaking to her from a much more, let's be very real here. Is she guilty in front of him? Any indication that she's not guilty? She was caught. You know what I mean? Like, folks, there's no arguing it. You know the old phrase, you got your hand caught in the cookie jar? You know what that means? You were getting cookies. Okay, like, there's no discussing this. Hand in jar means you were going after cookies. No questions. I don't care what your motivation was. You were getting cookies out of the cookie jar, right? In that same statement, this woman is called an adultery. There's no arguing over whether or not she was doing that thing. And yet Jesus is speaking into her life in such a way that is way more concerned with the infinite than the whether or not you are guilty at this exact moment. Folks, you need to know in the world that we're living in today, there are people out there who are playing very finite games and trying to win very short-term battles, and they are sacrificing the infinite in the process. People that say things to you, man, you get this picture of, of like wolves in sheep's clothing that are, that are trying to say things and, and trying to encourage you in such a way that I'm, I'm growing less and less okay with and more and more frustrated by the statements of like, do what makes you happy. Folks, when has doing what makes us happy as creation ever really worked for us? Do what makes you happy is a short-term, finite game, okay? There are people hiding behind all sorts of things that are fighting for the individual, maybe, rights or individual movements of things, and you all know what we're talking about here. We're talking about folks that hide behind flags and alphabets in a way to tell people that what they're doing is okay when they, when they go after their own and indulge the things that they want to do instead of asking the question, what is the, the infinite in this? And folks, sometimes the, the infinite is not... It's not easy, and it's not, it's definitely not you doing what you want to do in those moments. Folks, as a, as a creation, we don't do well, acknowledge that we don't do well when we serve our own vices and the things that we want. Think back with me for just a moment in your own life. How many times have you wanted something that you look at later on and you realize it was going to destroy you if you kept pursuing it? How many times have you wanted something and you look back and say, but, but like, I genuinely wanted this. I mean, think for just a moment, even in the world, I'll give one of my own examples because it's a very uh, bland uh, kind of initiating conversation in this. This is not what I wanted to do with my life. Straight up. It's not that I don't enjoy being a pastor because we'll talk about why I enjoy it and how I'd never do anything else now. But this is not what I wanted to do with my life. Okay. You want to know what I really wanted to do? Have you ever seen the movie Jason Bourne? I wanted to be that guy. You know what I mean? Like before Jason Bourne was even a movie. I know it's an older one, but before it was even a movie, I want to be the guy, and this is going to date me even more, I want to be the guy who was maybe sitting in church or at home, and my pager went off. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. Has a little number over there, and I have to say, <clears throat> I have things to do that you can't know about. I will be back when I get back. Like, I wanted to be that guy. No social security number, disappear to do things. You know, like that just seemed like a world of intrigue and so much excitement for me. And you know what? I know what? Even after I was called to ministry, I still had those things. I thought, you know what? I want to do this. I can't tell you how close I was to buying a stripe guide, his boat, his gear, and his book. 
When I say his book, not that he wrote some long book. I mean, he was booked for six months and I had gotten pretty good at putting people on fish. And there was a moment in ministry when I was so close to saying like, I want to jump into this. This is what I want to do. And let me tell you, when it got close, when it got real close, I was so unsettled in my heart knowing this is not what I need to do. This is not who I've been called to be. It's not the life I was called to live. It's not why I was put here on this planet. But let me tell you, I wanted to do this. And God was saying, no, you are to do this. And if I do this, I may win in the finite games and be short-term happy catching a bunch of fish, but infinitely I lose. I lose badly. You understand, folks? Like The life that we're living sometimes, we're tempted to pursue the finite, and we absolutely forfeit some of the infinite because we get so focused on the finite. Think with me for just a moment. Where do these things apply? It's not just from a professional standpoint. It's from a spiritual standpoint of am I going to do things or be focused on things because I want to win this little battle and we're giving up the infinite. Or maybe we see ourselves like I want to accomplish this or do this or be a part of this. Folks, these things happen not just professionally, but personally. They happen sexually. They happen all sorts of ways that we, we want to do the things that we think in those moments make us happy. And yet God is saying to us, sometimes it's not sometimes. In pursuing the finite, we miss out on who God really put us here and what we're, what we're supposed to be accomplishing in this life and where real happiness is found. But we want so desperately sometimes to pursue the things that we want. I know... Some of you were around when this story happened, but I couldn't remove my mind from the imagery of this. There was a gentleman who attended our church here years ago and unfortunately has since passed away. I, I was unable to know uh, him at a much younger age because he was uh, very mature when I moved here. He used to attend another Nazarene church in our county. And after getting out of church one Sunday, he yells to his children. They are walking toward their vehicles, and unfortunately, the church is on one side of the road and the vehicles are on the other, and he has two young children with him. And the horrific, tragic story of reality, not some proverbial, not some urban legend, a man that we went to church with, yells at his two kids and reaches out to grab both of them, and he grabs his little boy and misses the little girl on the way by, and she runs immediately into the road to her death. It is the picture of God saying, I know that you think you want to do these things, that you want to pursue these things, and yet I'm reaching out with everything I have saying, please stop, because God can see what's in the future. He can see where these roads head to you, and you pursuing your own desires and your own goals do not end well for you. They do not end well for you. Folks, when you look back, at these, at these stories of the life that maybe we have chosen, the things that we've decided to do, you see a God who, who sees this person <clears throat> and wants to bring her back into relationship because she's already made these decisions to be in the space. She's chosen the, the, the finite. She's chosen those things that are the short-term maybe wins or gains in that life, and she's sacrificed what, what she's called to be or what she needs to be or the relationship that God wants to have to her. This is not the only story that it happens. I mean, look back with me for just a moment. Our minds sometimes begin to work against us to justify things that are not good for us. Look back at the story just for a moment. Without even reading the story, think back with me for a moment about the story of Adam and Eve. Especially Eve interacting with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I have oftentimes wondered how many times did she go by that tree? You don't, you don't read the story like, hey, here's the Garden of Eden, and then like two hours later she's at the tree eating the fruit. 
You know what I mean? Like, it's not the way you read it anyway. Like, I've wondered how many times, how many times has she had that thought process? But, but over time, she begins to justify. And then she has an evil that is speaking into her life, asking her questions, beginning to, 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 to throw shade, to cause doubt into what she's been told by God is, is the way to be living and the things to be doing. Those things have been questioned. And eventually, she says these words. Or the Bible says that she looked at that fruit and that she saw it was good for food. Folks, do you understand? She had been told by God not to do this, but over time she got to a place where she thought it was good because in a finite understanding, that's what she wanted. Folks, this morning, one of the challenges of what Jesus does in front of us, which by the way is our challenge as well, is to help point people toward the infinite and keep them from seeing the winds or to see the finite as as to what is being pursued it is to pursue the infinite, that to understand that we are part of something much greater than just this one decision, and that true happiness, joy, and peace is found in doing what God wants us to do way more than the one little infinite thing that we may be thinking within ourselves that we want. Several weeks ago, I had a chance to be in East Tennessee, going over to see a, a, a friend's family in, in had just a day trip to run over and come right back. And it was a neat thing to be able to be in a part of the state I'd never been in. I was kind of the ride along for the trip. And we stumbled into a very, very old cemetery in this very, very old East Tennessee farming community. We stumbled into that cemetery and I walk around. I'm talking about like you could see uh, graves and and tombstones from years and years ago. Some of those that were, you know, born in the early to mid 1800s. Some of them born in the mid 1800s and died in the early, like right at the turn of the century in the 1900s. There were several. There was a name of a family that I don't know. I couldn't tell because of all the tombstones. Some of them weren't even marked about how many children they had had and how many of them that were marked to have died within a year or two. Like it was a very humbling thing to see this family and say like this was their existence because of the, uh, the, the amount of loss that this husband and wife had sustained. It was very humbling to see all of those. But as I looked around at the tombstones and began to look at like what they all read, many of them said things like this, beloved brother, faithful father, our dear mother, devoted husband or devoted wife. Folks, will you see for just a moment what marks their tombstone and how they will be remembered forever is not how they saw themselves or pursued for themselves. It is how they serve the people around them. Do you see the difference? Their tombstones are defined by how they served their fellow man. Like, they will be for... I have no idea who these people are, but the only indicator of their life was that she was a beloved wife or he was a beloved husband or that she was a great mother or a great father or that, that it was a brother or a departed, you know, the one that was loved by... Like You read those tombstones and it brings into sharp contrast, folks. This life is not lived to pursue or to accomplish the things of self. This life is lived to have had purpose, real and meaningful purpose. Like What happens at the end of this life if you die with a great amount of toys and leave them to whomever is still here? Like, what, what have you done? No offense. Some of you are going to inherit some toys and it's going to be fun. Amen? I mean, let's be real for a minute, okay? Like, some of you will inherit a toy, okay? And it's going to be great. That's still very finite, though. You understand? It's very short term. Like it, I think that one of the things our culture needs desperately and that we need in the church desperately is to see 
is to see the life lived with purpose. The purpose of an infinite, playing the infinite game is so much more desirable than the short-term finite wins, the things that we think we need. And so our question this morning is, is asking that question, God, how can I better play the infinite game and not get so lost in the finite that this world is so hell-bent to pursue? I heard a guy in an interview, it's actually from the 2022 Masters. Many of you keep up with golf a decent amount, uh, much more than I do. I enjoy it from time to time, but the guy's name is Scotty Scheffler. In an interview from the 2022 championship, he talked about his life and what his wife was telling him before they went into the final rounds. And he says these words, Meredith, his wife, said to me, if you win this golf tournament or if you lose by 10 strokes, I'm going to love you just the same. You're still going to be the same person. Jesus loves you. And then he looks up and says, and what I do is just to try and glorify God. It's why I'm here and that's what I'm trying to do is just to glorify God. Now, let's all acknowledge, easy to say that when you just put the green jacket on. Amen? Like, you just put the green jacket on. It's real easy to say. All I'm doing is trying to glorify God. You hear this man's statement, and you can tell by the conversations he had with his wife before this ever began. His life means so much more than a finite game that he's playing. He understands himself so much more. And you need to know that playing infinite means that from time to time you will give up the short-term, finite, selfish desires of your heart because you're more worried about becoming the person that God wants to be than you are about becoming the person that you want to be because what God wants to be means infinitely more than whatever I could come up with. One other phrase I've heard a couple of times over the last several weeks, and I just couldn't get it out of my head when it talks about being a person of purpose and in, in, in what that means of like what we're willing to endure or deal with and, and in this applying to the infinite games. I don't even know who to attribute this to because it's just been stated. It's almost like a proverb that's been passed down. Maybe you've heard it as well. Give a man a purpose and the means to accomplish it and he will crawl through broken glass with a smile. Give a man a purpose and the means to accomplish it and he will crawl through broken glass with a smile. I, I love this imagery of recognizing when we have purpose, the sacrificing of the things that we thought we wanted, the things that, that we came up with that we wanted, we recognize doing without those is way worth it because we recognize that living with a purpose means so much more to who we are. Folks, when you look back at this story specifically of how Jesus interacts with this person, you've got to recognize Number one, it's very, very sad that this person is brought in not because anyone cared about her, but because she could be a pawn to win a battle. That's painful. And yet in the midst of someone using her chaos to win their battle, Jesus speaks infinitely into her world. I'm not here to condemn you. Hear me, Christians. You speak into this world. I'm not here to condemn you. But I'm here to tell you, leave your sin. Do this no more. Move forward with a purpose in life, not winning the, the finite games or even worried about the finite games, but focusing on the infinite. God, we come before you this morning wanting to be the Christians who go back into this world and know how to interact with people, with individuals that likely are in places of chaos similar to the story that we're reading. And yet we want to know how to go back into this life. And so God, help us to know that when we go back into this life, to hear the phrases of Jesus over and over again. God, that we're not here to condemn, 
God, we are here because we love You and we want people to be living a life of purpose as well. God, we want to, to call them to a Christ-like existence. We also want to be the ones that are embodying this Christ-like existence. And so God, forgive us of the times that we chase the very finite in the short term and sacrificing the infinite. We love you this morning, God. We thank you for who you are. In your son's name we pray. Amen. And you are dismissed. Have a great Sunday afternoon.